All right, we are back another week. We're investing, we're making money, or in this case, we're losing money. I'm down $433 on Friday. So let's take a look at just the past week. The past week wasn't so bad, $251 in the red. But if I look at the past day, which was Friday, 0.58% in the red. In fact, if I go to the markets here, the S&P 500 was down nearly 1%. The Dow Jones down 0.6%. That's quite a drop, at least from what we're used to, having a percent decline at the end of the week. Let's go ahead and talk about the reasons that that happened. The CDC announced confirmation of the second case of novel coronavirus in the U.S. and the first in Illinois. The patient is a Chicago resident, and my team at the Chicago Department of Public Health is working in close coordination with the CDC, the Illinois Department of Public Health, the Cook County Department of Public Health, and many other partners. That's right. We have the coronavirus, which originated in China. Now they're saying it's, it's accelerating. It's spreading pretty fast within China. We have two confirmed cases, like you just heard, in the U.S. Now, I'm sure they've been quarantined, but these are both people that had recently traveled to China. They contracted this virus and then they came back to the U.S. and then they came in because of these different symptoms. And now they're they have shown to have the coronavirus. So we don't know how many people really have it in the U.S. We have two confirmed cases. It says in China that they've had at least 1,400 people infected with it and 41 people have died from it, which 41 out of 1,400, unless a lot more people are infected, that seems like it's pretty lethal, 41 out of 1,400. So I'm no medical expert, but that seems like a lot of deaths if just 1,400 people have been infected. You know, I look at the coronavirus, and on the CDC here, it says the the symptoms of it. I'm looking, well, how do you tell if you have this thing? Uh, you got a runny nose, a headache, a cough, a sore throat, a fever, and a general feeling of being unwell, which these symptoms... Uh, they describe about 90% of all illnesses. So that's very helpful, CDC, to describe that if you're just feeling unwell and you have a cough or a sore throat or a headache, that you might have this deadly virus. So that's very helpful. Now, it's difficult, really impossible to tell how big of a deal this is going to be in the U.S., whether this is going to be just something where we get some cases of it and they're, they're treated efficiently and quarantined, or whether it's going to be some big pandemic, right? We don't know what's going to happen. We have two main different different groups to listen to. There's the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and then we have our news media, which CNN, NBC, you can refer to their coverage on Ebola if you would like to know how they take and cover events like this, which I would describe as extremely dramatic. So the news media is in the business of selling clicks, of getting views, of getting people to have eyeballs on what they're doing. That's what the news media does. The CDC says that the U.S. can handle this, that we're prepared for a breakout. We're able to quarantine people. We have the facilities and the ability to treat people. So the CDC says the U.S. is ready for the coronavirus. Now, I always find it interesting. You know, you look at the transmission of this. It's by air, coughing and sneezing, shaking hands, that type of thing. It spread like the flu, like any other common virus. The flu kills at least 30,000 people in the U.S. every year, sometimes a lot more than that. But that's 30,000 people killed every year in the U.S. by a virus we already have here. Now, you compare that and how the market actually reacts to the flu. The market doesn't care at all about the flu. The market doesn't move at all about the flu. Now, you compare that with the coronavirus. One day of news that one other person being infected by it, not even dying by it, but just being infected by it, dropped the market a percent and a half. When that news came out, the S&P 500 went down 1.5% on an otherwise positive week. 
So up until now, the market was in the green. Then the news came out that one other person, a total of two, were infected with the coronavirus in the U.S., and that dropped the entire stock market a percent and a half. So obviously, this goes to show of we have things that we know about. The flu is a, a known entity, is, is a known factor in people's minds. And you can see the effect to the market of something we're introduced that we don't know about. So that's what this is. Investors saying we don't know how this is going to affect the markets, going to affect travel. Maybe this will be the catalyst that starts some kind of downturn. Obviously, it will have some effects if we keep having cases of it. So investors are pricing that in right now. Personally, I don't plan on changing anything around because of this. I plan on just holding on to my holdings, but but this may definitely drive the market down more if we have continued cases of this. Now for the big headline news of the week, the thing people have been talking about, cash is trash. So this is Ray Dalio. He's the Bridgewater Associates founder. He's worth just shy of $20 billion. When you have a net worth of almost $20 billion, people tend to listen to what you say on financial news. So so when you give out financial advice and you're worth $20 billion, that's something usually people listen to. But here he is calling cash trash. And the issue is you can't jump into cash. Cash is trash, okay? <laughs> there it is, cash is trash. So this is something that's interesting. When you move from the world of uh, personal finance, you move into the world of investing. You always hear that cash is king. Paying for things in cash, not buying things with debt. You have this whole mind frame that cash is really important, that responsible people use cash. And then you move into the world of investing where everybody talks about how terrible cash is, how it's like the, the last thing you want to move into. Ray Dalio here, who was a very notable figure in the investment world, saying that cash is trash. And he's not alone in this. This isn't some kind of inflammatory, against the grain, contrarian position that he's taking on cash. He is in consensus with everybody else in his position. So this is something that I've been saying for a while, that big name investors, they do not like cash. Warren Buffett is included in that category. So I want to go over this and, and explain the differences between personal finance and investing and the reason that big name investors really do not like cash. So this is what we're familiar with to begin with. I'll go ahead and play a clip here from the Dave Ramsey show. It's the Dave Ramsey Show, where debt is dumb, cash is king, and the paid-off home mortgage has taken the place of the BMW as the status symbol of choice. Did you catch that? He just said, where debt is dumb and cash is king. And he says that same phrase, you know, debt is dumb, cash is king. The, the paid-off home mortgage has taken place of the BMW as a status symbol of choice. I have that memorized because I've listened to his show, and he, he plays that at the beginning of his show every single episode, saying that cash is king. So I don't know about you guys, but I don't know what to believe anymore. I'm getting mixed signals here. We have Ray Dalio, who's a, a pretty decent investor, saying that cash is trash. And we have Dave Ramsey, who is a, a personal financial expert that I think also gives pretty decent advice that serves people well. Both of them are giving a little bit different of statements here. One of them is calling cash king, while the other is calling a cash trash. So how does that work together? I actually believe that the statements that they're making are entirely compatible with each other, given the context that they're making these statements. So people that are saying cash is king are probably in agreement with Ray Dalio in the way that he's saying cash is trash. You just have to look at the context here. Dave Ramsey is not known for his investment acumen. He is known for his personal financial advice. On a personal level, cash is a very helpful thing. Cash is king on a very personal level. When you're going through your budget, when you're buying things with cash and not using debt, when you're not getting into credit card debt, when you're not taking out loans. I've been doing episode after episode talking about debt. The last couple ones have, have mentioned debt a lot. 
Dave Ramsey is giving advice of how to avoid these very common pitfalls that damage people's ability to earn money later on in their life. In that context, cash is king. He's saying to not spend more money than you make. And what he does is he outlines specific instruments, specific vehicles that allow you the ability to spend more money than you make. Loans are part of that. When you take a loan, you're spending more money than you make. Credit cards are another tool that allows the common consumer that's even out of all other sorts of debt to get themselves back in debt. That's part of the reason that Dave Ramsey hates credit cards. His advice that cash is king here, I think is accurate. He's saying to buy things that you can afford. That is good advice and it fits within the context that he's giving. So while Dave Ramsey is referring to cash in a personal financial perspective, Ray Dalio is talking about portfolios. He's talking about from an investment perspective. He says cash is a horrible place to have money in an investment perspective, and he is correct. That is the worst place that you want your money. Part of the reasons that he outlines is inflation. In 1955, the average price of a movie ticket was 73 cents. Today, it's about $9. This phenomenon is called inflation. Inflation is the first reason that Ray Dalio does not like cash. The first reason that he outlines. And of course, this is an obvious one. As things go on in time, year over year, the prices of everything goes up over time. You can look at the prices of homes. You can look at the prices of movie tickets that they outline here. It went from $0.73 cents to $9. So the amount of money that you have sitting in cash, one thing is almost guaranteed with it that in 10 years, it'll be worth a lot less than it is right now. That's what you're guaranteed with cash, where if you have your money in assets and productive companies, they can hedge against inflation by charging more for the, the things that they're selling and the services that they're selling. So they have a natural hedge built in for inflation. I look at this and if you have your money in cash, at best, you could keep it in a high yield savings account and you might be able to stay current with inflation. In almost every other scenario, your money's losing value. So keeping your money in cash, first of all, over the long term is a guaranteed way to lose money. Now, inflation is one reason, but it's not even the biggest reason. There's other bigger reasons why big name investors, notable investors, almost as a consensus, do not like cash. There's, there's bigger reasons than just inflation. Here's an interview from Howard Marks asked about this specific things. What it would take for him to move into cash as a position, to move a lot of money into cash. How much time would you really need to meaningfully adjust a portfolio? Well, well, first of all, I, I appreciate your use of the word adjust, because a lot of people who are less astute than you would uh, say, how, much would, how, how long would it take to go to cash? And the answer is going to cash. We don't go to cash, and going to cash almost under almost all circumstances is stupid. We don't go to cash, and under almost all circumstances, going to cash is stupid. This is coming from somebody that this isn't the most aggressive investor in the world. Howard Marks has interview after interview talking about the market right now has been accelerating upwards, and to invest with caution, to invest with a lot of caution, this is somebody that overall is a very thoughtful, defensive investor saying that we don't go to cash. Under almost all circumstances, cash is a bad idea, and he explains further why. Among other things, when you go to cash... You have to be right, right away. Because if you go to cash and, and prices start, keep going up for a while, as they invariably will, and, and, and uh, returns continue to be positive, you fall so far behind by being in cash that you may even jeopardize your business to stay in business. If you move to cash, you not only have to be right, but you have to be right right away. That's the problem with it. He says if the market continues to go up and you fall behind a long ways, we've seen people do that. People have moved to cash since 2013, and they've missed out on a bull run, where now they've fallen so far behind 
that it's almost impossible to catch back up with the market. That even if we do have a recession or a bear market now, they would still be behind because of moving to cash at the wrong time. So he highlights a more important problem with moving to cash than just inflation. You have to time things correctly. So most of the time it's better just to stay invested. Now to address the elephant in the room, Warren Buffett. I know that everybody watching this is is thinking Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett, he has so much cash. So let's go ahead and listen to a little bit more of what Warren Buffett has to say on this subject. I think it's important if Warren Buffett is doing something that is contrarian against the grain, against what most investors are doing, I think it's actually important to listen to what he himself says about the subject. So let's go ahead and take what he says on it. So how much cash should an ordinary investor have on a percentage basis, do you think? It, it depends on their personal situation. I mean, it, 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 if you're working in something where you're, you're living off your, your, your paycheck from, from week to week, you want to have a little cash around, and, and you certainly don't want to have a credit card that's maxed out or anything like that. Right there, that is validation for Dave Ramsey's advice. Cash is king. On a personal, financial level, he says right there, if you're, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you need to get out of that lifestyle. You know, a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. You need to have some discipline and save up some money, have some cash buffer in your financial budget. And you certainly don't want to have a maxed out credit card. That's exactly the advice that Dave Ramsey gets. And and the purpose of his program is helping people rethink their personal finances, where they get out of that idea of always living on the edge, always being in debt. In that scenario, Warren Buffett agrees with Dave Ramsey, cash is king for a personal financial level. But here's where he continues on and he talks about cash in a investment standpoint. But if, you know, if, if your house is paid off, if you don't have big living expenses, you got a portfolio of, of decent diversified businesses, uh, you don't really need any cash. Did I just hear that right? I didn't do any fancy editing with that clip. I didn't uh, take some some tortured editing and, and put together a bunch of clips of Warren Buffett saying different words and piece them together in that sequence. That was just Warren Buffett saying that if you have a diversified portfolio, if you have low cost of living, if you have your personal affairs in order financially, you don't really need any cash. You don't need any cash in your portfolio. Now, obviously, this begs the question of Warren Buffett. You're, you're telling people that they don't need cash, why you yourself are one of the biggest cash holders in the world. Your, your company, Berkshire, has $100 billion plus in cash. And you're saying for people, everyday people, that they don't need cash in their portfolios. Um, isn't that a little hypocritical? You know, why are you giving different advice to other people than you are taking yourself? So you can be more cash-free than Berkshire is. Yeah. Yeah. I've got responsibility. You know, we've got insurance claims. We could have hurricanes that, you know, would happen. Uh, all kinds of things where we might have to pay out billions of dollars. And I've got over a million people that own shares that are counting on me to run the place so we get through periods like that. So asked directly about this, he says that there's a difference, that I own a publicly traded company that's one of the biggest companies in the world. I have millions of shareholders. I have uh, insurance payouts that I can have that can be billions of dollars. And I have a lot of responsibility that the common investor that has some savings for a rainy day fund and they have their little portfolio, 
we don't have those same responsibilities. We do not need to hold the same cash that Warren Buffett does. So he tries highlighting the distinction between the two different scenarios, but a lot of people don't get it. They say Warren Buffett is telling everybody something, that they need to move all their money to cash. I don't think Warren Buffett is telling people that at all. I think that he's in a completely, entirely different situation than the common shareholder. And the words that he's saying, the advice he's giving, I think that we should listen to on this subject. This is also something that Warren Buffett has thought for a long time. This isn't new advice that he's giving. The the idea that he doesn't like cash and he's telling people that it's not a good place to have your investable money is not something new. He's said this repeatedly throughout his entire career. There's clip after clip of it. And I like that. No, I'd much rather own a good business uh, than have cash. Uh, And it is a hedge against the dollar? Well, you can say all assets are a hedge against the the dollar. I mean, all you know is that the dollar is going to be worth less 10, 20, 30 years from now. There will be no tendency uh, toward deflation in in, in this country over time or or in virtually any country. A tendency toward inflation. Absolutely. Now, the reason that I highlight all these different clips and talk about these different investors is to show that When Ray Dalio said cash is trash, this isn't some kind of inflammatory, contrarian statement that he just wants to grab headlines. What he's saying is largely in the consensus. They all have different ideas of where to put that money instead of cash. Ray Dalio has the approach of having a globally diversified portfolio. He highlights that you should have some money in gold. Warren Buffett likes having mostly U.S. investments. He does not like gold at all. Howard Marks mostly invests in different debt instruments. But regardless... Whatever their differing opinion is on the ways to invest, the consensus among them is that they do not like cash. Now, I try to emulate that same advice that these investors give. I try to emulate the same attitude where I want my money working for me. I want it all to be working very hard for me. I want it to be invested in these companies all the time growing, producing cash flow in the form of dividends that is quickly and efficiently reinvested back into my portfolio. Out of my entire portfolio, The only amount that I have that's in actual cash or cash equivalents is some that you could say is in cash, which is these treasury bonds here. I have a few thousand dollars in treasury bonds. It's a very small amount compared to my overall portfolio, which is at $74,000. So that's the amount of cash I hold. It's less than 2%. The reason that I hold that is just to have a a little bit of dry powder. If I want to sell out of that, specifically put it into one company, if one company has some big downturn or something that I want to take advantage of. But other than that, I have the huge majority of money actively working for me invested in all these different companies. So I try to follow the advice of Howard Marks, of Warren Buffett, of Ray Dalio, where I don't believe that cash is the place to sit large chunks of money. You know, unless you have a specific reason for it, unless you're buying something with it like real estate, you want to stay invested. You don't really need a whole lot of cash. Okay, in other news, Boeing says that they're going to keep paying their shareholders dividends. So they don't plan on cutting the dividends. This is something where... I thought that Boeing's dividend was becoming increasingly unsafe by the fact that they have serious cash flow issues. They are paying for their dividend essentially with debt right now. So in order to fund their company, their payout ratio is way above 100%. They are taking on new debt, new loans in order to fund their their dividends to their shareholders. Now, this is not the ideal situation you want your companies in. In fact, this is a major red flag to invest in a company that can only afford to pay their dividend through debt. It's like investing in a company that's only surviving based off the credit card. So this isn't something that's indefinitely sustainable, but hopefully this isn't an indefinite situation. They think that they can get these planes back in the air. It's taken a lot longer than they've planned, but regardless, they say that they're not cutting their dividend. I won't hold my breath with that. We had Dennis Mullenberg who said that he was going to remain the CEO, we saw how that turned out. So things that they say 
can often be different than how things work out in reality. If it really comes down to it, Boeing might cut their dividend. In that case, I'll still sell the company. So I've said for a while now, I will hold this holding as long as they pay their dividend. If they decide to cut it, I will sell the company. So that criteria there still remains in this situation. Some other things I wanted to mention was just an update on this Carlos Ghosn situation. He wrote an opinion piece, uh, an op-ed in the Financial Times where he gave himself a defense. He went and linked to a bunch of things. It's pretty detailed. I read through the whole thing. I won't go over it in this video, but it's an op-ed by Carlos Ghosn in the Financial Times if you want to read that. Other things that are going on right now with this case, he's suing Renault for his pension payment. So he's actually taking legal action against one of the companies that he was previously employed by. And we have Nissan executives now saying that they want to get rid of this merger, which in a way validates a lot of the arguments that Carlos Ghosn was making. He was saying that the reason that Nissan wanted him out, the reason that they put this whole thing against him was because they didn't like the fact that he was merging Renault with Nissan. They did not like that at all. So they put together this ploy to legally get him out of this position. He's saying that's the motive. And now that he is out of that position, they're going forward with the split. So it does validate part of the motive that he claims is the reason that he was pushed out of this. So interesting case to see how this folds. I'll keep following it. Okay, let's get to some questions. Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com. That's Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com. You can also message me on Instagram or Twitter. I look at those as well. Or you can leave a, a comment on this video and I'll look over those as well. Now, the first one says, hey, Joseph, my name is Tommy. I found your channel around October and you've become my binge watch. And I absolutely love your analytics and the way you think. Please keep making these amazing videos. My question, you mentioned in a question submitted about concerns for the auto industry and buying a car with money you don't have is a very bad thing because of debt. I want to save up for a Tesla for so many reasons, but mainly it being my obsession for the past five years. I was planning on saving half the money. It's about $45,000 for the Model 3 I want. I want to save $25,000 and then loan the rest with a great paying job and low interest rates with good credit. Do you still advise against this? Even if it's the one thing I wanted for five years now, I would make us have to add it to our budget, but nothing major and doesn't mess with the investing at all and remove fuel from the budget. This for sure might not be the best finance wise as the opportunity cost might be high, but it's something that my girlfriend and I strongly want above all things. Okay, Tommy. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you writing in and, and the compliments of the channel and I appreciate your viewership and support. I'm, I'm glad to have you here. Now, having said that, I'm here to, to give the truth, tell you the honest truth. This might not be the response that you're wanting, but when I first read this email, it comes across to me as if you already kind of know that this is not a smart financial move, but you're looking for validation. You're seeking validation. You want somebody to sign off for you that you know, you're know you not making a, a, a really bad decision here. So that's not what I plan on doing. I don't plan on giving people validations for making terrible financial decisions. Saving up $25,000 for a vehicle and then loaning out another $20,000 to be able to purchase that vehicle, that is a terrible financial decision. So let me break this down for you. First of all, you say this might not be the best finance-wise decision. You know, it might have an opportunity cost that's high. No, this has an incredibly high opportunity cost. Not only do you have the opportunity cost of the $25,000 that you're saving in cash, that just goes to pay as a down payment on this vehicle. But that gives you the opportunity to own a vehicle where you have to take out another $20,000 in debt that will have opportunity cost servicing that debt for the next five years when you're making those payments. So 
Not only is all this money saved up, not even buying you the vehicle, after saving up all that money and the opportunity cost associated with it, now you have $20,000 more that you're servicing in debt, making it so that you can't invest as much in the future as well. And of course, you don't have to pay for gas, but Teslas still have maintenance costs. They still have wheels. They still drive on the road. They still require insurance. They still have parts that fail and break. You know, this is going to be something that is an incredibly high expense. You're going to be servicing debt while paying for insurance on something that's a depreciating liability. So saying the opportunity cost might be high. No, Tommy, the opportunity cost is incredibly high with your plan on doing this. This money could go to so many other places. $45,000, that is a down payment on a house, right? That is a rental property. That is the start of a, a pretty substantial portfolio that you could be investing in. So there is a lot of opportunity cost with this. The $25,000 that you have as the down payment is enough to buy you a safe, reliable car that will have cheaper insurance and the gas on it is minimal compared to that extra $20,000. So if you're looking at the financial part of this, you're wanting to know how this vehicle fits in with your financial future. If you have goals on becoming financially independent, of growing wealth over time, of creating investments that work for you, this isn't something that fits along with those goals. This works directly opposite of all of those goals, directly opposite of your interest in becoming financially wealthy. What you're doing by purchasing this vehicle is making Elon Musk more wealthy. You're making Tesla more wealthy. That's what you're doing is you're handing your hard-earned money, the stuff you work for, over to Tesla. So understand what you're doing there. Now, if you want a more holistic sense of it, now I just turned 30 a couple months back and I realized that we do have one life here. If it's something that you want that you know is, is not financially a good thing, that it's financially a high opportunity cost, it's financially uh, something that works contrary to almost every financial goal. And you understand all of that and you say, hey, this is something I value so highly that I want it above all those other things. I, I've taken into account everything that this will affect in the future. If you've taken that all into account and you still want it, then buy it. I realize my 20s are behind me. You only get one chance to be in your 20s. Those are behind me. And in 10 years, I'm going to say my 30s are behind me. If we do everything all the time that is only financially minded, I don't think that that's really a way to live either. So you have the freedom to make your decisions and try to get the most bang for your buck and the things that you spend money on that are not good financial decisions, but bring you a lot of joy. I buy stuff all the time that are not financially related at all. They're just things that I just want. I know that they go down in value rapidly, but I want them. I like having a nice phone, so I buy a nice iPhone. I bought one of those uh, Oculus Rift headsets. So it was like 400 bucks. Obviously, that thing is going to be like worthless in five years. I don't care. I just wanted it. That was something that I wanted to buy, so I bought it. So a Tesla is a very expensive example of that. I don't try to buy things that are that expensive that have that much opportunity cost. I want you to do something, Tommy. This is an exercise that I want you to do because I think it will illustrate the amount of work that you're going to be putting into affording this vehicle. What I want you to do is calculate your take-home salary. So the money that actually gets deposited into your bank account, I want you to calculate that for the year. This is without health insurance, without Social Security, Medicare, all the different taxes that we pay, without state tax. Your take-home salary, and I want you to add together how many hours of work you would have to work to afford this vehicle. $45,000. And then add together how many months you're working to be able to afford this thing. For instance, if your take-home salary is $90,000, that's your take-home after paying all the different taxes 
you walk away with $90,000, which means that you're an extremely high income earner. You're earning 130000 somewhere around that, depending on where the taxes are where you live. But if you're in around 130000 140000 you might walk away with 90000 maybe. I haven't calculated that. But let's say that your take-home is $90,000. You would have to work six months to be able to afford this car. Six full months to be able to afford the privilege of driving this Tesla. That's what you're looking at here. That's the amount of time that you're spending in an office with stress, with work, with waking up, with driving to and back from work over and over again to be able to afford a car is the amount of joy that you're going to derive from this Tesla. So great, so joyous that you're willing to spend six months of work. If you're making 90,000 a year take home, it's incredibly difficult for me to believe that you're going to derive enough joy from this thing to justify the amount of work that you're going to be putting into it. I'm guessing that you're not making $130,000 a year. I'm guessing that your take-home isn't $90,000. No offense, but that's just not an average take-home. I'm guessing that you might make somewhere between fifty dollars to $80,000. Your take-home being somewhere around forty dollars to $60,000, you're probably going to be working upwards of a year to be able to afford driving this vehicle. So you can make that judgment for yourself. I think in almost every situation, buying expensive things like this should come when you have excesses of wealth. There's a lot of other things a lot cheaper that can bring you joy in life. I don't know if this one's worth it. Now, if it was me, I would go and I'd save up that $25,000 and I'd buy a car for $25,000. That's my advice, Tommy, but you're a, a free person. You can make whatever decisions you want. I'm just giving my input here. Okay, Ryland says, hey, Joseph, love your channel. It's very informative and helpful. I'm new to investing and have had my funds in a well-known brick and mortar full service brokerage for a few years now. After digging more into various investing strategies, plus seeing the fees and high expense ratios of actively managed funds I've been investing in, I'm thinking about switching out and having a go at it myself with an online brokerage like M1. It's easy to feel confident when the market's been on such a long bull run, but as we may be on the edge of a downturn, it's a bit scary proposition to handle everything myself. I feel that it would be empowering and a lot cheaper, but I also don't want managing my finances to take over my life. What do you think about the situation? What would you recommend? Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Okay, Rylan, I think that this is a good question that deserves a lot more nuance than what people typically give this question. If you go to a financial forum, people that are enthusiastic, you know, they're infatuated with finance, they follow the news and they keep up with everything, it's part of their lives, they're going to say, do it yourself. They're going to say, that, oh, the brokerages, they charge you fees, avoid them at all costs and do it yourself. I think that they forget a lot of time that most people don't have an interest in finance. Most people don't have an interest in investing. So not everybody's going to keep up with portfolio allocations, the best things to invest in, all that type of stuff. For those people, sometimes having a helping hand at a full service brokerage where there's brick and mortar, you can go in and talk to someone and, and calm your nerves when there's there's market volatility and other things going on, that does offer some value there. So you need to look at your decision. This is not a one answer fits all. Brick and mortar brokerages will charge you more in fees. The, the funds that they put you in, they have expense ratios. Usually if you have a managed account, you're at least paying one and a half percent. That's about what they charge. You pay that fee every single year, year over year, whether the market goes down or the market goes up. It is something that I absolutely hate paying. I hate paying that fee. I'll avoid that fee if I can help it. Now, if you move to M1, and like you said, you don't want finances to take over your life, you can accomplish that. You simply invest in ETFs. Those are just like the funds that you're investing in. If you buy an ETF that has domestic holdings, one that has foreign, and then one that has some bonds, congratulations, you've built a portfolio very similar to the ones that they will at a full service brokerage. So you can recreate the same type of portfolio 
that's going to have the same performance and you can avoid the one and a half to two percent fees that they charge that's a very easy way to do that with services like m1 the thing that you're going to miss by moving from a brick and mortar full service brokerage to something like m1 is you miss the ability to walk in and have a helping hand and have somebody reassure you that when the market's going down to stay invested you miss somebody there that's going to cool your nerves during market volatility that's a lot of the value that they they offer there. So a good full service brokerage, they'll help their clients keep invested and they'll help their clients avoid making really dumb financial decisions. So if you believe that you're in that category, it's good to know your own shortcomings. And if you believe that you're in the category that you're vulnerable to making very poor financial decisions, that you're vulnerable to selling at the bottom of a recession, then I would stick with a full service brokerage because they might be able to smack some sense into you when you go to them and you want to sell during a bad time when the market's gone down. So that's a situation of where I'd say to stick with them. The situation I'd say to move to something like M1 Finance is if you believe you have the stomach and the wherewithal to stay invested during market volatility. If your portfolio goes down 10 or 20%, if you believe that you'll be able to stay invested and you, you will keep investing in the funds that you have, then you can save a tremendous amount of money over a long period of time by avoiding those fees. So look at your situation. Don't have pride in it. Try to determine what category you're in, and that will help you decide whether you should move to a do-it-yourself or something where somebody else is managing it. Okay, I'll do one more question here. This one is from Exposition. He says, Hi, Joseph. Great show. Look forward to it every week. I'm curious about two things. One, I understand that your investment strategy, passive income via dividend payout, you always, however, show your total weighted return number on your preview page while stressing that this number is not necessarily so important that it could quite possibly be blown out of the water any day during a serious correction. That being said, I was wondering why you don't show your total dividend return on your main preview page as opposed to your total weighted return, since this is your main goal anyway. I'm not intentionally not showing my my total dividend return. It's just because the default view just shows your total return. That's when I open up my broker, that's the default view. The amount of dividends that I've made total since the beginning of my portfolio is somewhere around $2,400. So that's the amount I've made. It's trending in a direction where every month I'm earning more and more money. The whole first year of investing, I earned very little in dividends. It was like 500 bucks. And then in the past year, I upped that by like $1,500, $1,600. And in the last couple of months, I've been earning over $200 a month. The second question you say, do you have an alternative investment strategy if, let's say, dividend payout culture becomes obsolete? If organizations simply decide dividends are over, something similar to tip culture ending, has this thought figured into your future possibilities, especially with the amounts already allocated to your account? Any future plans to boost your positions? So I think that this is an interesting scenario. What if dividends just went away completely? What if every company just started doing share buybacks and not dividends at all? They were just a thing of the past. First of all, on a side note, I think that that's very unlikely because a lot of companies are so big, so vast, they already own so much market share and they have so much cash flow, so much money that paying a small percentage of their net revenue in dividends does not hurt their ability to expand and grow their business. They already have enough money to reinvest back in their business so they can give you, the shareholder, better overall returns by reinvesting most of their money back in their business and then paying out shareholders directly through dividends. So there's always going to be companies in that category that they're not limited by the amount of money they have. That's not the bottleneck so they can afford to return a decent amount to shareholders. But on a side note, regardless, if we just pretend for a minute that every company just went away from dividends, they were just outlawed or something. At that point, what I would do is 
shift some money over into bonds. So I'm still earning interest. Presumably those still exist. And then I would go over to the next closest thing to earn me passive income. So overall, the the goal is the same. There's nothing special about dividends. My goal is passive income. That is the intention I have is to create a stream of dependable passive income. Dividends just so happen to be a vehicle that I'm using to accomplish that goal. Dividends are a means to an end. They're not a perfect vehicle. There's flaws with them. There's things that people argue with about dividends. But at the end of the day, they are the closest thing I have found to create a dependable stream of passive income. The next closest thing I have found that I would probably shift to if dividends didn't exist would be real estate. I would buy rental income properties. So if no company paid dividends, I would probably sell the majority of my portfolio. I would take that $70,000 and I'd put it as a down payment on a duplex or something around my area that I could manage. I'd be able to expand, take some of the bank's money, do more down payments and you know, gather more properties, gather a network of rental income properties with the end goal being the same, creating a passive stream of income. So that's the relationship that I have with dividends is right now they are a means to an end. They are a tool that I'm using to accomplish the goal of passive income. There's nothing really special about them. They're just the best thing I've found so far to be able to accomplish that goal. So I know of nothing that better suits that end goal. And I don't think I'm going to be switching to anything unless dividends really become something of the past, which I think, again, is very unlikely. Okay, well, that's going to be it for today. You guys have a wonderful weekend. You can always email me, Show at gmail.com. Otherwise, I will talk to you guys next time.